Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 27th of February, Liam Thatcher taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Liam looked at the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke. Liam is one of the leaders at Christchurch London and a regular teacher and writer on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Uh, it's great to be here with you. Of course, I would rather be with you in person, um, but it's brilliant just to be able to have this opportunity to speak via Zoom. I have to say, I still find this quite weird doing this kind of set, setting sort of um, via Zoom. I've got my notes over here, my face in front of me, you there, camera there. and it, it is odd. And I think one of the oddest things about it is just that I don't get anything back from you. So, you know, I crack a joke, I hear no laughter, which I guess Andy is probably used to. Uh, but for me, that's quite a, hey, there you go, got you back. Um, there you go. It's quite a weird thing. There you go. That was just a test to see if I could see anything. And I saw a few smiles. Um, so that's great. Feel free to smile, laugh, uh, jazz hands, whatever. Um, hopefully today will be a bit interactive and we'll have some time for questions, some time for discussions, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I'm really excited about it. And so just so you know, I am in London, as Andy said, I'm a teaching pastor at Christchurch London. So I live here in Southwest London uh, with my wife and small daughter who will probably just burst in behind me at some point and do something cute and hilarious behind me and turn me into an internet sensation or something like that. Um, uh, and, but I, I've loved getting to know uh, Christchurch Manchester and it's probably been about, oh, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years I've been coming up sort of once a year um, or so and so it's just been great to kind of get to know the church and to see and and get to be a small part of what you're doing as well so really exciting and for those of you who aren't part of Christchurch Manchester if there are any of you here today you're very welcome as well and I'm sure if I got to know you I would love you too um, but here we go we are going to be talking today about the Gospels and as Andy said in particular the synoptic Gospels I love the Gospels they're by far my favourite bit of scripture to read and to teach from uh, but also the bits that I read and I just think every time I read them or every time I teach them I think there is so much that I don't understand about these books because in a sense they are the culmination of the whole story of scripture so there's so much going on there in the life and person of Jesus and I mean, it kind of makes sense that really if someone is coming to reveal to you the true nature of what God is like, that's going to be a little hard to get our heads around. And so there is loads in the Gospels that I don't get. Um, and I enjoy that, actually, because it means that there's more to discover and you never tire of them. So I'm excited about today. But so, you know, like I could talk forever on the Gospels. In fact, on some of the courses I teach on, I teach two, three days on the Gospels. So you're going to get a very condensed summary today. This will just be a toe in the water, but I hope it'll be helpful. So we're going to be looking at the synoptic Gospels and I'm going to take that little phrase and break it into and explain what I mean. So synoptic and Gospel uh, and actually we're going to do it in reverse order. We're going to start by asking what are the Gospels, what are the synoptic Gospels and then uh, how do we understand them? What is going on with these particular accounts of Jesus' life? So hopefully you've got the notes. Um, page two although I didn't give you page numbers so that's really annoying I've got page numbers on mine and none on yours so I'm <laughs> very sorry about that I realize that every time I come to teach uh, I I need to make a note next time I need to write page numbers on them but very sorry um but it's the first main session uh, section of it so the synoptic gospels I want to ask first of all what is a gospel before
before we ask even what synoptic means. What is a gospel and where did the gospels come from? Well, the, the closest literary form that we have to what we have in terms of the Gospels in the ancient world is a, a sort of literary genre known as a bios, a biography. Essentially, the Gospels are biographies. They are biographies of Jesus. But it's worth just noting um, that there are certain conventions around creating a biography like this that affect the way you read them and interpret them. And unless we understand what kind of biography we're dealing with, we'll actually have a whole load of expectations about the Gospels that are perhaps unhelpful. So an ancient biography um, would typically highlight the key events that surrounded a particular person and their works and words and deeds. And whilst they are definitely historical documents, there wasn't an expectation that an ancient biography would be strictly chronological in order, like everything happened in this particular order. Um, actually, they would often, like a, a modern biography does or autobiography does, group things, you know, generally chronologically. You generally look at someone's life from beginning to end. It would be weird if you read a biography and it started in the middle of their life like there's a general chronological flow but often material is grouped according to themes or particular things that happened in seasons of the life and it's arranged in a particular way in order that you don't only get the details of the life lived but the meaning and purpose of it as well and it's important to notice that because I think a lot of people have issues with the Gospels and they say there are contradictions, you know, in this Gospel, this thing happened before this thing or, or this thing happened in a different order or there's a slight difference here. And I think if we put those kind of expectations that everything must be strictly chronological, uh, if we put those kind of very Western modern expectations on the text, we get all sorts of problems to do with contradictions, contradictions that simply shouldn't be the case because when we know the kind of text we're dealing with, we're not dealing with something where the author is like strictly bothered about chronology. He is trying to get you to understand a sense about the whole meaning and purpose of this particular person that he's writing about, in this case, Jesus. And of course, we, you may have questions about that. So we'll, we'll come back to questions at any point. Uh, feel free to store them up. So where did the gospel come from? I mean, it clearly didn't just like fall from the sky, ready, written and edited and the words of Jesus nicely in red or anything like that. So how did they get written and why did they get written like they were? Um, if you study um, theology at any kind of academic level, you will often come across different forms of criticism, uh, source criticism, form criticism, redaction criticism. Um, I put a little bit in the notes there. They're different basic ways of trying to understand how did the books come together? How were they edited? What was the original sources? And that stuff can be really helpful, but also it's kind of quite limited. Um, so we can talk about that if you have questions about that. Uh, but actually what I find quite helpful is just to look at what the gospel writers themselves thought they were doing and how they tell us they were putting together these texts. So Luke chapter one, he says this, the first four verses of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught quite a dense paragraph, but that's how Luke begins. And I think what's important about this is he tells us his process for writing. He tells us that there were many eyewitnesses, verse two, who orally, verbally communicated the stories about Jesus, which were then written down and compiled by various different people. Luke researched these over quite some time and then wrote his own account, drawing on this material, which was arranged for a particular purpose, 
to convince a particular person and it was sent to that particular recipient. So what we see from Luke's own admission is that there was an editing process, a researching process that included loads of different sources. You know, some people talk about the different sources behind the Bible as if that's some kind of terrible secret. <laughs> there may have been other sources and other texts that people had written. Actually, Luke tells us there were loads of sources and that should give us confidence because he has researched them and he has created something using the truths and insights from all these sources in order to make a text that is coherent and is, is, is fit for purpose for a particular person who he is wanting to communicate. So the historical, uh, sorry, the Gospels claim to be historically accurate, they're based on multiple sources, including many eyewitnesses, and they were written for a particular audience and a particular purpose. So let's go to the next slide. This, by the way, is the most geeky uh, slide or page on the handouts uh, you are ever likely to see. Um, sorry about that. We're not going to go through it uh, in depth, but the geeky part of me quite enjoys it. <laughs> um, this is a, a depiction of the material that is shared across Matthew, Mark and Luke. So we're talking today about the synoptic Gospels. And I've argued that the Gospels are biographies, ancient biographies. But what does the word synoptic mean? Well, synoptic is actually, it's, it's made of two parts. Uh, you've got syn, uh, S-Y-N, not S-I-N, which means together, and optic, which is to do with, you know, view, uh, sight. So a, the synoptic gospels mean three gospels that share a together view, a shared vision. So Matthew, Mark and Luke, the argument goes, share and portray a shared vision of Jesus. And they are therefore a bit distinct from John, who, of course, believes the same things, but puts it in a different way and probably didn't draw on the same materials. And you looked at John last time. John is very different from the other Gospels. So the synoptic Gospels are, are three Gospels that share the same view of Jesus. And the most likely hypothesis is that Mark was probably written first and then Matthew and Luke probably both had access to Mark's Gospel and a whole load of other texts as well, and then wrote their uh, their texts based on that material they had and then John was probably written entirely separately and so if you look at the geeky chart on the right uh, you'll see that there is an enormous amount of Mark's gospel that is found in the other gospels 76 percent of Mark's gospel also appears in Matthew and Luke and so I, I think it's quite clear and many most scholars I think agree with this and there is a huge amount of shared not only shared understanding but also shared material it's like they had access to each other's work and so probably, I, I mean, I wouldn't, wouldn't die for this particular view, but probably Mark came first, uh, probably written mid to late 50s, Matthew maybe late 50s, early 60s, Luke probably early 60s. Um, and then some scholars, many scholars, talk about this other text, which I put there cryptically, called Q. And if you've ever come across this uh, and wonder what on earth is this text, um, Q, uh, people hypothesize, is another source that the gospel writers drew from, um, in the writing of their own texts and there are all sorts of reasons why people think that this text exists and the reason it's called Q is it comes from the German word quell um, which means source. Uh, it may exist but we don't know 
we have no access to such a text. Um, and it, to be honest, doesn't bother me if it does exist. What I find a bit strange is that when I did my master's at King's College London, I would go to the library and I'd sit there in, in, in the gospel section and there were just vast shelves of books all about what Q may have been like and trying to reconstruct Q. And there were more books on Q than there were on Mark's gospel, which I found baffling because Mark's gospel definitely exists and Q's existence is just a hypothesis so quite strange but to me it doesn't bother me the idea that there was a Q there absolutely was a Q and an R and an S and a T and a U and a V and we know that not because they were called that but because Luke says I drew from a ton of different sources like there were loads of sources available because Jesus life and words and ministry were so precious that people were talking about them and they wanted them to be written down so that future generations could know so what are the gospels their biographies about Jesus. What are the synoptic gospels? Well, they are gospels that share a common view about Jesus, and they probably share one another's sources as well. So when we're looking today at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we are looking at three writers who have written still very different biographies about Jesus, but they cohere together. They seem to share a whole load of material and probably actually worked off one another to some degree. So next page in the notes. Um, actually, we won't dwell on this, but if you want to see an example um, of how things cross over, this is quite helpful. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 in all four Gospels, actually. Um, it's really interesting to see the number of words that are used exactly the same in different accounts. Uh, and, and I think it's quite clear that John is an entirely independent um, account. I mean, he literally uses a different word for fish, which is quite a big deal, whereas the other Gospels seem to have used the same sort of source material. Um, you can look at that maybe it's a bit geeky maybe it'll be helpful to demonstrate it uh, but on to the next page page five in my notes sometimes people ask well why do we actually need multiple editions of the gospels like why do we need more than one why do we need three or four um and i why are there differences between the accounts and i think for me the answer is because um each of the gospel writers is trying to communicate something of this vision of who Jesus is but each of them maybe is writing for a particular reason or wants to focus on a particular aspect of Jesus maybe they have particular concerns in mind or they're writing to a particular audience and so they have selected the material that works best for their purpose for their agenda and some people think that's quite troubling um, particularly if you have the idea that basically God just sort of dropped this gospel into people's minds. The idea of the writer having an agenda may seem problematic to some people. I don't think it needs to. You know, Luke had a particular person he was writing to who he wanted to convince, and he knew if I want to convince this person, I need to put the story across in this particular way to reach their concerns, their situation. And that's what each of the gospel writers has done. And so we're actually going to take some time today to think, what were the gospel writers trying to do? How they were, how were they going to uh, how did they want to particularly portray Jesus? But let me just sort of set up two thoughts which I think are important in this. Why are the differences between the accounts and why do we have more than one in the first place? Well firstly the authors were selective. Um, they had a lot of material to draw from. They couldn't include it all. I mean John even confesses that if I'm allowed to go outside of my allocated gospels today. Uh, Jesus says that in John 20 and 21, Sorry, John says it. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
Like John's saying there is so much that Jesus did, so much to say about him, that of course any writer has to be selective. You know, I'm only covering a tiny amount of the Gospels today. I'm only covering a tiny amount of the bits that were written. There's so much more about Jesus that could have been written. Any communication by, by necessity has to be somehow selective. So the authors were selective, but they were also creative. It's not just that they looked at the material and thought, well, which bits would I like to keep in and which bits should I kind of get rid of? Actually, they had a particular idea in mind. And so it's not just what do I keep in, what do I keep out? But with the stuff that I am including, how am I going to creatively arrange it in a particular way in order to help people to understand my meaning? So when you look through the Gospels, you find that they are creative texts. They're not just um, written down like every detail about Jesus in a really monotonous, detailed way. They're creatively arranged. They're artistic creations. So the Gospel writers selected material and then arranged it in order to draw out the themes they particularly wanted to emphasise. So in some Gospels, for example, um, you have all the miracles grouped together. And it's not just that Jesus spent one week doing miracles and then moved on to something else. Like they're, they're arranged together for a particular reason, because the gospel writer wants you to feel the force of, wow, just constant stream of miracles. This it tells you something about Jesus. Other gospel writers tend to maybe break up the miracles and the teachings, maybe put a teaching next to a miracle, and then another bit of teaching and a miracle. And you've got to think, why do they do that? maybe there's actually a connection between the the miracle that is put next to the teaching because the miracle helps us to understand the teaching or the teaching helps us to understand the miracle and it's not the case that it either did happen all in one group or this teaching necessarily happened next to this miracle but the writer has chosen all this stuff that Jesus did and is true about him and thought how do I arrange this in such a way as to really help people get the meaning that I want to communicate so it's worth thinking about them as creative texts. And just like any creative, like a filmmaker or a musician or a music arranger, a music arranger, that's not a term, a producer, that's it, um, might take all this material and then creatively arrange it, leaving some stuff aside, putting stuff in different orders to when they originally happened. That's what the gospel writers are doing. Think of them like a film director. A film is not shot in strictly chronological order. Maybe you do all the stuff that happens in one particular location or all the stuff that happens in another location. And then in the editing, you move it around in order to tell the most compelling story possible. That is what the gospel writers have done. And that shouldn't trouble us, I think. They were selective and they were creative. And there are loads of examples that I can show you um, about this and we'll, we'll get into some in a moment, but just one simple one. And if we were together, I would probably actually get you reading this out and talking it out and, and feeding back. And it would be way more interactive than we're able to be today. But one little example worth looking at is the temptation passages of Jesus in the wilderness. They're recorded in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, um, but they're quite different. The temptations are in a different order. And some people find that troubling. Actually, I think it's quite helpful when you understand the, the purpose of the gospel writers, you can see why they did it that way. So in Matthew's gospel, for example, um, a central theme of his gospel is the kingdom of God. He talks about it all the time, more than the other gospel writers. So it makes sense for Matthew's telling of the story to really emphasize that theme of the kingdom, because that's what he wants to communicate. And so in the temptation passages, how does it end in Matthew? It ends with Satan offering the kingdom to Jesus by means other than the means God intended. So that's the culmination of the temptation. Why? 
Well, not necessarily because that's the order it happened in, because that's what Matthew wants you to focus on, to understand is going on in that moment. It's about the kingdom. Whereas in Luke's gospel, Jerusalem and the temple is a massive theme. That's not to say the kingdom's irrelevant, like it's there, it's strongly central to Luke. But he, everything, as, we, as we'll see in a moment, builds to Jerusalem and the temple in Luke's gospel. So how do the temptations end there? Well, Satan takes Jesus up to the top of the temple and emphasises the temple theme. Again, I don't know exactly what order it happened in, but I get that the writer is trying to communicate something about this moment. Like, here is my main thing, kingdom or temple. And here is how Satan is trying to subvert that main thing. But Jesus wins the victory. Do you see the point? Yeah, a couple of nods, thumbs up, smiles. <laughs> no shaking of heads, no storming off angrily. So I, I take it that you're with me. Great. So the authors were selective. The authors were creative in putting together their texts. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at each three Gospels uh, in turn and I'm going to get you to try and figure out some things about what the purpose of the gospel writers was what they were trying to communicate but let's just take a moment um any questions on any of that anything that you found troubling or anything that wasn't clear enough um anything you'd like to ask at this point I don't know the best way to do Q&A is it just like raise your hand if you have a question and anyone Ah, yeah, Daniel. Um, you said that Mark was probably written first, and that, uh, why is Matthew the first then, in terms of what we get in the Bible, if that makes sense? Mm. That is a very good question, and um, one I don't have a great answer to, but basically because people don't really agree with it uh, or on on it. So there are different views. Um, some people think it's because. Um, well, I guess they're related views. Partly that's the way that it, um, the church in church history, when the gospels were collected together, they were often put at the beginning. And so it sort of preserves that, that order. Um, but it's not clear why the church fathers did that. Um, one of the theories is because Matthew is probably the most Jewish gospel and has the most connection to the Old Testament. So, and of course, bear in mind that originally people weren't reading the Bible like this, where you turn the page and it's, you go from Old Testament to New Testament, like in, in the space of the page. Um, but some people argue that because uh, Matthew has the most coherence with the Old Testament, he was probably put first in order to sort of continue the thread through, if you see what I mean. Um, that's one theory. Um, and there are various other theories. I think, I think that's probably most likely as far as we can tell. Um, but it's, it's weird, actually, because Luke and Acts are two parties. So if I were arranging it, I probably would have gone like, I don't know, like Matthew. Oh, I probably would have gone Mark first because it's chronological and then Matthew. And then I probably would have put Luke and Acts together and then John separately. But, you know, mm -hmm. we're all different. <laughs> Thank you for that, Liam. No worries. Any other questions? No? Great. Well, in that case, I'm going to get you to do some work. Um, and uh, what we're going to do in just a moment, in fact, uh, Andy has told me, right, great, that's helpful. Um, we're going to go to breakout rooms in just a moment. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to assign um, each of your groups a particular text um, or a particular gospel, as it were. And I'm going to give you each a challenge to try and figure out something about the gospels. So each of the gospel writers um, is selective and they're creative. They have a particular vision of Jesus that they want to communicate to their hearers. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try and figure out what have they done with this material in order to help us to understand particular resonances or focuses of Jesus' life and ministry. 
So I'm going to give you different tasks. And for each gospel, um, your task will be slightly different. But essentially, I want us to try and answer two questions. Who is the Christ and what is the crisis? Uh, which is beautifully alliterative. So who is the Christ and what is the crisis? By which I mean this. Um, who does this particular gospel writer want me to think Jesus is? Uh, what do they particularly want me to understand about his life uh, and, and uh, how he fulfills Old Testament prophecies? That's who is the Christ. What particular aspect of his character do we want to emphasise here? And then what is the crisis? You know, what is the particular thing that Jesus has come to do or the particular thing he has come to deal with? What's the particular problem he has come to confront? And the way we're going to do it is we're going to do a slightly different um, exercise for each group. Um, and so what we, we've got seven groups, probably should have thought about this before. Um, we're going to do. Yeah, OK, groups one and two, when you go into your breakout rooms, you will see what number group you are. Um, and so I'm going to put this in the chat if I can do that. Oh, I can't do that, actually. So maybe um, maybe Andy, you might want to pop it in the chat if you can message the whole group. And um, just to remind you, if you are in groups one or two, then I want you to work on Matthew's gospel. If you are in three or four, I want you to work on Mark's gospel. And if you are in five, six or seven, I want you to work on Luke's gospel. Um, there you go. So one or two is Mark, uh, three or four is, oh, sorry, no, one or two is Matthew. Andy Brownlee. <laughs> Did I get that wrong or is it you? I'm just going to assume it was your problem. I, I got it wrong. Right. One to two is Matthew. That's it. Right. Three to four is Mark. Mark. Five to seven is Luke. Five to seven. Luke. <laughs> Way easier when you're actually in a room and you just go, you yeah. do this, then you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, so if you are in Matthew's gospel, then you're going to do the exercise on page six, which is the next page, um, which has the, the table with Torah, Matthew and significance in it. And what I want you to do is compare those texts uh, in Exodus and in Matthew and try and draw out what is the significance? What is the common theme between the Old Testament passage and the New Testament passage? And therefore, how does that help us to understand um, things about Jesus. If you are in Mark's gospel, I want you to do the exercise on page nine, um, where it says whose son is the Christ, and there are three columns, and I basically want you to work through some of those texts. You don't have to look through all of them, because once you've looked at the first couple, you'll get where I'm heading, and try and work out what is the title that is given to Jesus, who says it, and is there anything particularly significant about it. And then if you are in Luke's gospel, I want you to do the exercise, which is on page 11, where there's a whole series of boxes kind of going around the page. And uh, you'll see that some of the Old Testament passages and New Testament passages sort of cohere. Um, and some of the boxes, I've given it the hint of what the sort of connected theme is, and some of them I haven't. So I want you to fill in the gaps um, and just get through as many as you are able to in the time we've got. So I think um, I'm going to give you about 15 minutes for that. Great. Any questions? Does that all make sense? Fantastic. Brilliant. Enjoy and see you back the other side. Welcome back, everyone. Um, I think. Yeah, it looks hey, like that's everyone. Hey, Liam, I like the pen look. You can keep the pen there. That's a good, that's a good look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of want to be gangster. Um, great. Uh, I probably won't do that because, you know, it's easier to talk without a pen 
leaking in my mouth and bitten off the end as well. That's awful, isn't it? Um, okay, great. Well, uh, welcome back. I hope you found that helpful. Um, and well, we're about to find out what you found. So um, actually, oh, this is great. I've still got the list of breakout rooms so I can see who's in each group. That's very helpful. Um, great. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go through each of the Gospels in turn um, and kind of get you to feedback. And this sort of forum is slightly odd for feedback because it's hard to know like who's, who's going to feedback and you know how are we going to manage all that so it might be slightly awkward um but we'll get through it and i'm excited to see what you picked out from the exercises so we're going to start with um matthew's gospel um and so uh, we're on page six of the notes um Matthew, just to give you a bit of background, um, is often described as the most Jewish gospel, partly because of his attention to detail um, around Jewish customs, um, his focus on ethics, on the law, um, his criticism of the Jewish leaders, um, and his regular reference to Old Testament scriptures, either explicitly or, or through sort of allusions. Um, it may have been written to Jewish Christians um, or Christians in areas with large Jewish populations. It's hard to be sort of exact about that. Maybe Syria, maybe Palestine. Help, and the purpose seems to be helping them to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and giving them a, an ethical framework for how to live as kingdom people. And a large amount of Matthew's gospel is given over to teaching. There are huge blocks of teaching, more so than in the other gospels, although, well, arguably John is quite similar in, the, in that regard. So um, people who were in groups one and two, um, I'd love to, maybe we'll get someone who has been group one. So that's uh, Andy, Daniel, Keith or Peter. Um, maybe one of you can sort of start talking us through um, what you discovered doing the exercise. So can I have um, a volunteer from group one? Uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, so there's a, a lot of similarity between Exodus and the Matthew passages. So we, um, so uh, let me just go through some of my notes. So um, the Egyptian ruler felt threatened. He was killing a lot of babies. This is similar to what happened with Jesus and Herod. Um, then it goes on to both Jesus and Moses fleeing from persecution. Um, both Jesus and Moses returning after that king died, whether the Egyptian king or Herod. Fantastic. Great. We'll stop there. And I'll oh, very, so I can give, that's, that's brilliant. So there's those the first three boxes. Um, brilliant. You got all the points there. So uh, there's a child who is saved from an evil king who is bent on slaughtering the children, uh, flees from for his life. Box two and has to live in a foreign land for a season as well. Um, and then he returns after the death of the king. And that's both the case with Pharaoh and, of course, with Herod. Yeah, great. Fantastic. Um, Brilliant. Now, someone from group two. Um, so that's Bill and Christina, Marion and uh, users iPhone Gladys. There you go. Um, Andy's mum. Hi. Great to see you. Um, uh, yeah. Could someone from that group uh, maybe talk us through the final three boxes? What do you see when comparing um, Exodus and Deuteronomy with Matthew? Who'd like to talk us through those? Marion? Yeah, go for it. No. I'm sorry we didn't get onto those final three boxes, so we can't say any more oh, apart from the, those first three that we thought there was a crisis and every time God found a way out. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wonderful. Yeah, OK, so no worries that you didn't get onto this. Um, uh, obviously, it was quite a rushed process. Um, so any anyone who did the other group, did you get onto those? Uh, yeah, we did. Um, Great. Uh, yeah, talk us through those. Yeah, so um, um, 
So at one point, God uh, says that Israel is his, his um, uh, firstborn son and that Jesus is also, and that happens in Matthew. Mm. Then um, we find that both Jesus and Israel go through the wilderness, through the desert, and there's this number 40 that occurs, whether it's 40 years, 40 days. Um, and then both Jesus and, and Moses go up the mountain um, and they teach from there. Mm. Um, and so the it seems that the Christ or Jesus is kind of the new, like Moses mm. or the fulfillment of Moses. And mm. the crisis seems to be that um, Jesus is leading a new exodus of people out of slavery mm. and also out of a kingdom of darkness, mm. in this case, the Romans. Um, mm. So, yeah. Fantastic. Brilliant. I mean, you nailed it. Um, so I, I think that's exactly it. So it seems that Matthew is deliberately, and we've only looked at, the early chapters of Matthew here. There's loads more that we could do through the rest of Matthew. Um, but Matthew seems to be deliberately, creatively arranging the material to make you think, haven't I, haven't I seen this somewhere before? A child who, you know, the, people are trying to kill him and they please to a foreign land and <laughs> you know, he's called the son of God. And then he's, he's in a wilderness for a period of 40 units of time. <laughs> like, oh, hang on, this is Moses. Now, of course, it's not like Matthew sat down and thought, how can I pretend Jesus is Moses? Let's make up these facts about his life. No, these genuinely happened. And actually, if they didn't happen, like we've got a problem, a crisis of faith here. So I'm not saying that the authors made them up, but rather the authors looked at them and went, wow, in the sovereignty of God, Jesus has fulfilled all of these things of Moses. That is incredible. So when I'm selecting what to include and what I'm not going to include, well, because I want to communicate that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Moses narrative. He's the prophet like Moses that Deuteronomy promised would come, then of course I'm going to emphasize the things that really help people to spot those connections. It's like at all of these points, Matthew is like, oh, and then this happened to Jesus. <laughs> like subtle theological wink. Uh, it's almost like if you could find the original manuscripts, there'd be little wink emojis that he scribbled in the sides and be like, come on, get the hint. Like he is the new Moses. Yeah, brilliant. And actually he fulfills both um, the roles of Moses he is the prophet like Moses, but also, as you pointed out as well, he also is Israel. So he he embodies Israel's own experience of being uh, in the wilderness um, and so on and so on. And actually, if we were to look at, well, we won't have time to do this, but if we were to look at the birth narratives a bit further, we could see how he how he does that and how he fulfills various prophe uh, prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, um, also embodying Israel as well. So he's not only being the prophet like Moses, but he's also embodying what the nation itself, who were led out of slavery by Moses, um, was meant to do, but failed to do. Um, great, let's look at just one final aspect of this then. So turn to the next page. And um, I mean, like I say, we could go right through the whole book and show how, how the Moses theme runs throughout but um, just so you know it doesn't only happen at the beginning um, let's look at the final passages as well so if you were to compare the final speeches of Moses and Jesus um, you would notice a bunch of similarities um, so let me just read I'll, I'll read the Deuteronomy one which is probably less familiar uh, the, the Matthew one is the Great Commission, which I probably don't need to read out for you to sort of get. So as I'm going through it, just think, ah, is anything that uh, is anything here remind me of the Great Commission? So Deuteronomy ends with this. 
The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go uh, with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give him. Uh, give them and you shall put them in possession of it it is the lord who goes before you he will be with you will not leave you or forsake you do not fear or be dismayed any themes from that particularly stand out and remind you of the great commission anyone uh, want to suggest a few you know it has been groups one or two um anyone want to suggest some things uh carol go for it yeah, they're being sent out aren't they in both in both cases that, that yeah you know, go and do what i've what, what 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 I've asked you to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're both being sent out. Uh, yeah. Where are they being sent out from in both cases? I suppose from the safety of of, um, of home or or what they what they consider a, a safe place. It's it's actually going out in faith, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, more particularly, they're both on a mountain. <laughs> um, so so they're up a mountain. And so um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, there they are on a mountaintop and Moses sends the people out into the land. And so you're up a mountain with Jesus, like at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I think Jesus deliberately chose a mountain for his body of teaching that is similar to the giving of the law um, in Sinai. And so you're up a mountain and you get a commission, go to the land. And this time, not just to the promised land, but actually to the nations right so there's this broader fulfillment of the the commission yeah um what what are they told to do to the nations in each passage and is there a similarity or difference there the um deuteronomy one is um like po um possession of of the land and i guess um by like sharing the gospel and like you know trying to encourage people into the kingdom of god it's also like kind of taking possession like you're you're going out and trying to like claim like ground for for god if that makes sense yeah yeah so there's still a, like a there's there is a sort of claiming ground but the manner in which it's done is quite different <laughs> we are we are we run alpha courses we don't slaughter people like um or at least i don't in my church I, I can't speak for all of your churches but like our commission is slightly different right um so we go out and yes we take the land which is now not just one little bit of land it's actually the whole of the world but the way we take it for the kingdom is not through force it's through the the sharing of the good news of jesus yeah uh, I'll, I'll just sort of fill in the other gaps so um in deuteronomy but not because you're not doing a great job just because we need to move on um in deuteronomy it talks about doing all that i command in matthew it's do but also teach all that i command as well so there's a passing on of, uh, of this stuff um the lord himself will go before you in both accounts. Uh, God will never leave you or forsake you is the promise in both. Um, in Deuteronomy, who is it that actually goes ahead into the land? So it's not Moses, right? Who is it that goes? It's Joshua, right? What was Jesus' name? Yeshua. Joshua. <laughs> he is the one who literally goes into the land and then sends us to go into the land as well. Uh, both names, Joshua and Yeshua, uh, mean God is salvation. Yeah. So I think right through the whole of Matthew's gospel, 
as, um, as, as you found in your group work. Uh, Matthew is depicting Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's story, and in particular, the fulfillment of Israel under the Mosaic leadership. Uh, and Jesus is the new Moses who, who leads the people um, out of captivity, no longer to Pharaoh, um, but actually to other powers as well. And if we had time to look through this, um, uh, I could show you how actually in many ways the Pharaoh is, or rather the Satan is depicted in, in sort of Pharaoh language right through Matthew's gospel as well, which is quite interesting, as are some of the religious leaders, which is maybe another aspect of it. So what, who is the Christ? He's the new Moses and the new Israel. What is the crisis? Uh, Israel is in bondage. Um, the people of God are in captivity. They need to be set free from the powers that are holding them so that they can go and take the land. Now, not forcefully, but with the gospel, um, which is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise as well, right? They will be blessed to be a blessing to the nations, the whole world. And as they go, the Lord is with them as, uh, as he was with the people of God. Great. Good work. And for those of you who weren't in the Matthew group, I hope that makes sense as well. So you've obviously not read the same passages as the others, but I hope that that still connects with you. So let's do um, Mark next. Um, so page eight. Mark, uh, as I argued, was probably the first of the Gospels to be written. And Mark is different from Matthew in that it was probably written to Gentiles. And we get that because he translates various Aramaic phrases uh, and explains Jewish customs. So he explains hand washing and why they do it and what the Old Testament reference is, which you probably wouldn't need to do if you're writing to people who were well versed in the Old Testament and regularly wash their hands, uh, which is not to say the Gentiles didn't wash their hands, but <laughs> they didn't have the ceremonial significance to do with it. Um, Mark himself was not an eyewitness, uh, but many of the church fathers say he, he was Peter's interpreter. So probably Mark is writing Peter's account of the gospel. Um, we know that Mark and Peter had a close relationship. So in 1 Peter 5, uh, 13, um, Peter refers to him as my son, uh, like Andy did to me at the beginning. Um, uh, and if you compare sort of Peter's proclamation of the gospel in Acts chapter 10 to Mark's gospel, they basically follow the same sort of structure. So it seems that Mark was so familiar with Peter's portrayal of the gospel, uh, probably heard him preach the same gospel sermon over and over and over. And so when he writes down Peter's account, he follows the same sort of structure as well, because he's trying to convey the heart of Peter's message. Um, Great, wonderful. So um, next page, I gave you three groups of um, texts and asked you to think, what is the title that is given to Jesus? By whom is it given? And what is the kind of um, scriptural significance of that? So that was groups three and four. So that's Abby, Anna, Lizzie, group three, uh, Andrew, Beverly and Francesca were group um, four. Was someone from group uh, one, uh, sorry, group three rather, um, Abby, Anna or Lizzie. Someone likes to talk us through uh, that first column. Who'd like to talk us through? Yeah, um, I can do that. So the title in the first column um, is the Son of God. Um, there's like in each reference, it kind of talks about how Jesus is the Son of God. Um, by whom is it given? In each in each um, reference, it's said by someone completely different. Like in one, it's um, a centurion. In another, it's evil spirits. Um, and so we kind of came to the conclusion that it must be a title that has been given by God and is just being affirmed by those those other um, people. Um, and yeah, to be honest, we got a little bit stuck on the like, what is the significance? And I think. I think I'm overthinking it, but essentially the significance is that Jesus is the son of God. Like, <laughs> is that, am I right on that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. The danger with this is always that you, you think, oh gosh, this, this must be too obvious. Like he must be asking, he must be trying to trick me. Uh, so it is always tricky not uh, overthinking it. Um, I'll, I'll unpack it a little bit for you, but yeah, brilliant. So um, you're right. So the title here in these references is The Son of God. And there aren't that many references to it other than the three uh, in Mark's gospel. Uh, by whom is it given? Well, the first was actually by Mark himself, um, who as we've seen, was probably a Gentile writing to Gentiles and the demons and the centurion. So um, they're outsiders of the people of God, aren't they? You know, demons, <laughs> not really Christian folk. Um, the centurion, not, not part of the people of God. And Mark himself, also outside. So that's, that's interesting. Um, the title Son of God is used by people who are sort of primarily outside the main sort of faith group of the gospel. Um, yeah, so what is the significance of this term, the Son of God? Well, it, it's, it's a term that actually didn't, you know, they didn't create it. Um, it's there in scripture. Um, in particular, 2 Samuel 7 um, is a really key text. I mean, it's a really key text for understanding Jesus in general uh, and the theme of the kingdom. And we'll come back to it a little bit later. Um, but essentially, 2 Samuel 7 is the promise to David where, where God says, um, I'm going to raise up after you, this is a paraphrase, obviously, but I'm going to raise up after you one who will come, who will be like this everlasting king, and um, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son, and his kingdom will have no end, which is like, how, how is that going to happen? It's pointing to Jesus. So the promise was that, that God would give a, um, a Davidic king, a Messiah, who would have a relationship with God, which would be like that of father and son. So technically, the son of God simply means the Davidic king who has that kind of intimate relationship with God. Now, that's really interesting because when we think about son of God, uh, particularly because last last month, right, Tom taught you about the Trinity and we think through the Trinity um, and we think Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. So we think son of God, ah, second person of the Trinity. That's not what these people would have meant. Like the demons weren't going, ah, I understand the Trinity and Jesus is, you know. Uh, that, that's not what's going on. Son of God simply means the Davidic king, the Messiah. He doesn't actually carry sort of ideas of divinity. Um, hold that thought if that's um, confusing to you. We'll sort of clarify that in a moment. But brilliant. Yeah, thank you. Um, someone from uh, group four, um, Andrew, Beverly or Francesca, would you like to talk us through the second column? Anyone like to talk us through that? Hi, it's not Andrew, it's Becky. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I, I've, you know, been very patriarchal having my husband's name on for me. Um, so we, to be honest with you, we, I think we tried to do too much. So we only ran through that first column. I think we might have what we're meant to do, but we only went through that one. And similarly didn't, well, I struggled to get the link between Samuel and the rest. But no worries, no worries. About that. No, 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 no problem. Um, Great. Well, did did anyone from either from the other group get to the second column? Otherwise, I'll happily talk it through. I love the sound of my own voice, so I'm really happy to uh, keep talking. <laughs> the second column was the one we didn't do. Great. Okay. Did you do the third column? Sort of. We started it. Okay. Great. Well, let me talk through the second column then, and we can come back to the third one. So the second column, we get all these different bunches of texts, and you can see just by the sheer number of them, there are more of these than the others, right? So the most common theme, or the most common title, rather, for Jesus in uh, the Gospel of Mark is Son of Man. Um, and who's it used by? It's used by Jesus. Like He calls himself the Son of Man. That seems to be his chosen title for himself. Um, so like with the uh, with 2 Samuel 7 and the Son of God, like there's an Old Testament 
um, idea behind this title, Son of Man. Um, often in the Old Testament, it simply just means a human being. So in Ezekiel, for example, um, it's used about 39 times, I think it is, um, often used of Ezekiel himself. So God calls him son of man. And he just means human being, one who has human descent. You know, like when C.S. Lewis says son of Adam and daughter of Eve, it's, it's that kind of idea. You're just a human being. Um, but over time, it came to take on a bit of a technical meaning, not only as a human being in general, but a particular human being. So Daniel chapter seven is a... a I mean, it's just a baffling passage, Daniel 7 and 9 uh, in particular. Um, I won't sort of read it to you or go through because this isn't a day on Daniel, but, um, but that'll be fun. Um, but basically, there's this strange sort of scene in Daniel uh, where um, there are these beasts which represent these different um, nations, which are all waging war against God's chosen Messiah, who is this... Um, this human being, this son of man, who represents the nation of Israel. So he's a human, um, but he is a human who particularly represents the whole of the nation. And so there's this battle going on, the beasts are waging war against God's people. There's the Ancient of Days who is in this courtroom scene. And then the son of man approaches him in this courtroom scene, interestingly, well, we're not going to talk much about the temple, but this is significant to that. The word coming can also mean going. So, well, that's that's relevant if we're talking about the temple, which we're not. So I don't know why I bother telling you that. But um, he, he basically comes into the courtroom scene um, and representing Israel, coming on behalf of Israel. And he comes on the clouds of heaven, which in itself is significant because most people don't travel by the clouds of heaven, right? <laughs> if I'd come up to Manchester to be with you, that's not my chosen method of transport. I would have driven. Uh, like, so who comes on the clouds of heaven? God himself is the one who comes on the clouds of heaven. So you've got a human being, son of man, who somehow represents a nation and somehow travels like a god. Like there's something quasi-divine about this character. And basically, uh, God gives victory to him over the beasts um, and there's something sort of, yeah, something strangely divine about him. Um, and this is the term that Jesus used mostly to refer to himself, which is interesting. When we talk about son of God, we often think, oh, second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's a divine title. It's not. It just means Davidic king. We often think son of man. That means human title. And given that Jesus was man and God, we tend to think son of God refers to his divinity and son of man refers to his humanity. It's the other way around. Actually, Jesus claiming to be the son of man, he is claiming this. He's claiming to be this one, the one who represents Israel, who will ultimately get the victory and somehow has a, a godness about him in the process as well. And I think we see that in Mark chapter 14, where um, Jesus is standing before the high priest and the high priest says to him, are you the Messiah, son of God? Right. Are you claiming to be the one who is in the Davidic line who is coming to establish the kingdom and Jesus says I am and you will see the son of man seated on the cloud as yeah, yeah, yeah coming on the clouds of heaven seated in the throne of power and coming on the clouds of heaven right so I am the son of God I am the Messiah and I'm more than that I'm actually the son of man and you'll see me fulfilling Daniel 7 and what does the high priest do he tears his clothes and he says, you have heard the blasphemy. Why? Because he recognised that Jesus is claiming to be more than simply the Davidic king. He's also claiming to be somehow God himself. You with me? There may be a lot to take in, um, but, but I think that's quite significant. That is the claim that Jesus makes of himself. The third claim then uh, in the third column um, 
is that he is the son of David as well. Um, so this is a, a, a phrase that is used a couple of times of him, maybe I think four times. Um, and interestingly, it is used by blind Bartimaeus and the teachers of, of the law, which I think is quite interesting. One of them is blind and gets healed. One of them claims to be able to see, but is truly blind. Um, and I think there's a contrast there between blind Bartimaeus and the teachers of the law, who Jesus regularly calls blind guides, right? So there's something going on there that I think is interesting. Um, and again, son of David simply means the Messiah the one to come in the line of David. Um, and there's a little riddle about sort of what that means. But basically, he, Jesus is being shown to be the one who is to come, uh, who fulfills the Davidic prophecy. And again, there's a sort of riddle around Psalm 110, which we probably don't have time to look at, but um, where Jesus sort of says, well, this son of man, uh, sorry, this son of David seems to be a bit more than just a king, because actually uh, God seems, or in, in the Psalm, he seems to be referred to almost as the Lord. Uh, what's going on there? There's a sort of hint of divinity. Okay, so who is Jesus? Um, he is the son of God, he is the son of man, and he is the son of David. Uh, those three titles, um, which are all sort of interwoven, but shared sort of different layers of what he has come to do, who he has come to be, and hint at his divinity. Actually, more explicitly than that, I think they claim his divinity and Jesus claims it of himself. Uh, flick ahead to the next page, um, page 10. And I'm conscious of time, so we won't sort of go through this in much, much depth. But um, essentially, there are three kind of main themes to Jesus' uh, ministry in Mark's gospel. So it falls into basically three, uh, three sections, as it were. So there's the activity of Jesus. Um, so he does so many healings and miracles and exorcisms. Um, so basically chapter one to the end of chapter eight is just all demonstrations of the power of Jesus again and again and again and again and again, so many miracles. Um, and then essentially from that point onwards, um, there's after a demonstration of Jesus' authority, it's all just this testing of Jesus' authority through opposition and suffering, of course, building up to his death. Um, the word immediately is used 42 times in Mark's gospel compared to seven in Luke and four in John. Like, it, it's a breathless gospel. It's like Jesus did this and immediately he did this and immediately he went here and immediately he healed this person. Immediately he did this. And it's like, whoa, Mark, like calm down. But I think it gives you the sense that Jesus is proactive. Like right? he's in a battle and he is doing a battle against the powers. He is doing a battle against, he, against sickness and against death and against the Satan. So the first major theme is really the activity of Jesus. Um, and then the passion of Jesus. So uh, Martin Kaler, a uh, um, biblical scholar, says Mark is essentially a passion narrative with an extended introduction, <laughs> by which he means that so much of the focus of Mark is on the, the build up to and the death of Jesus. Um, and then the third thing that comes from that is actually the cost of following Jesus. And the expectation of what it looks like to follow Jesus uh, is modeled on Jesus' own suffering. And we see this in three cycles in, in chapters eight, nine, and 10, where basically three times in a row over the course of three successive chapters, Jesus predicts his death, the disciples misunderstand <laughs> and go, surely you can't actually mean he's going to die or rebuke him for it. And then Jesus uses that as a lesson to say, yes, and if you follow me, this is the cost of discipleship. Um, and so we see that repeated. And the fact that it's there, three chapters next to each other, um, shows us that Mark wants us to get this point. We get the activity of Jesus, what he's come to do. We see the suffering of Jesus. And then that becomes a lesson. Like your life is to follow that same sort of pattern of Jesus. Um, so who is the Christ? He is the son of man, the son of God and the son of David. 
And what's he come to do? What's the crisis? Well, I think it's something to do with um, the powers. There are powers at work in this world. There is suffering, there is pain, there is death. Uh, there is demonic oppression and Jesus has come to deal with that and the way in which he does it is actually to enter into our suffering um, and then that becomes the way that we get saved but it also becomes a pattern for our own lives in some sort of way. I'm aware this is ridiculously quick you know I could teach a whole day on Mark <laughs> I could teach a whole day on each of these uh, gospels and we still wouldn't scratch the surface but I hope this is helpful just to see if nothing else it's quite different to Matthew right um, and it's quite different again to Luke so let's go to Luke next um, and we had three groups of people um, for this um, I'm going to learn my lesson third time round, and I won't um, start with one group and work the way through because then that puts the pressure on the final group who might have not got to, to the end uh, of, of the exercise so um, anyone from those three groups five six and seven um, uh, feel free to chip in so if, if we look through Luke's gospel, there are some comparisons, I think, to um, a particular Old Testament story, um, which comes in one and to Samuel. Um, and I think there's a deliberate reason for that. So um, the first box, um, the story of Luke begins with a couple. Um, there's Hannah and Elkanah um, in, in 1 Samuel 1, and there's Elizabeth in Zechariah. Um, box two. Uh, what is significant about those two texts and about this particular couple? They were old. They are, sorry, I missed that. Old. Old, yep. Yep. They and couldn't have else? children. They couldn't they have children. children, yeah. Yeah, so both cases they're old and, uh, and the woman is barren, um, which again <laughs> is often a hint in scripture. God is about to do something right because uh where something seems impossible um either literally in people's lives or actually barren women often are a prophetic picture as well of something that god is going to do he is going to bring life he's going to do a miracle great so what happens next is a temple also, i oh, think sorry. it was also the, the holy spirit as well because it was through the holy spirit that that that, that actually happened you know it was said uh, the the angel came and said, "This is what the Spirit of God is, is going to do," and and basically God did do that. Uh, so he fulfilled his promise, or um, you know what he said he was going to achieve. And obviously from that, the people that the children that was born went on to do God's work throughout the, the world. And I think it's left with the Holy Spirit and for us to obviously um, come to know the Lord and for the Spirit to live through us. Fantastic. That's great. Um, one of the weird things about Zoom is I have no idea who just said that. Um, <laughs> oh, it's Pearl, there you go. You're hidden behind my notes. Um, great, thank you, Pearl. Um, absolutely right, yeah. So so actually what happens next is that they have an encounter, um, a divine encounter. It takes place in a temple um, and, and there's something about the spirit just breaking in, which results in box four. What happens? That's as far as we got, I don't know. <laughs> We was trying to get into Samuel and everything like that, but that, that, that's the thing that mainly popped out to me anyway. Great, no worries. Um, God intervenes in their childlessness. Their yeah, and, and so he gives them a miracle child. Yeah, yeah miracle child, yeah. Brilliant. And in both cases, this miracle child grows up to be a prophet, right? So um, we get that with Samuel, we get that with John the Baptist, and both of them seem to have a, a similar sort of ministry if you compare their stories. Um, so what results in the next box, I'll just sort of talk through these and maybe I'll sort of just ask 
uh, for, for the time and then maybe you comment um, if you have any comments. Um, so what results there in both cases, next empty box is a song of triumph. Um, so in response to this uh, thing, both characters, um, they sing a song um, celebrating what God has done. We learn that the word of God is rare um, in this day. We read that explicitly in 1 Samuel 3, uh, 3 verse 1. And actually, I wasn't expecting you to read between Malachi and Luke. <laughs> That's quite a lot to cover. But actually, between Malachi and Luke, we know that God was not speaking. The word of God was rare in that generation. Then this prophet, this miracle child, has a precursory ministry, as in it's not just about them. They are preparing the way for someone else. Uh, so Samuel's ministry is like that of John the Baptist. Um, and then what happens in 1 Samuel 16 and Luke chapter 3? There is a moment of anointing that comes by the Holy Spirit. And in that, in both cases, next box, there is a declaration of a relationship of father and son. So what we have is um, in those two boxes, 1 Samuel 16, uh, the prophet goes to Jesse to find out who is going to be the anointed one, who is going to be the king. But it's not actually any of the sons. Um, it's David. It's David the shepherd. And so he goes to him and he anoints him, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. And there's this declaration in 2 Samuel 7, like I said earlier, that God will be to him and to his offspring like a father to a son. What happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? The prophet, John the Baptist, and Jesus meet. John the Baptist baptizes him. The spirit comes from heaven, anoints him, and God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. There seem to be de deliberate parallels. Um, I love this next one. It, I just think it's kind of cheeky and snuck in there. I don't know if any of you got to this next box, um, but a beautiful little detail in 2 Samuel 5, 4 and Luke 3, 23. Both of them begin their ministry at the age of 30. <laughs> Again, it's not like Luke just thought, oh, it'd be really convenient. I think I'm just going to make up that Jesus is 30. No, rather he looked at the details and he goes, oh my word, like this is a little Easter egg that God has put into the gospel. He has, he has given us this nugget that both Jesus and David begin their ministry at the age of 30. Uh, immediately then there is a battle against the enemy. So for Jesus, that is a confrontation in the wilderness with the Satan. Uh, for David, that is against uh, Goliath. This results, actually, this, this victory results weirdly in division. Some people love it and just go, yes, I'm going to get behind this king and his kingdom. Other people think, oh, I'm not having this, and they oppose it. And you get that weird division, both in David's life, with people persecuting and celebrating him, and also with Jesus. Some people wanted to stone him, others wanted, made, wanted to make him king. And so we see that actually through a long stretch in 1 Samuel 19, the penultimate box to 30, uh, and Luke 9 to 19, you get this series of travels. So David is traveling, whether through the wilderness or fleeing for his life, and there are threats upon him. He's doing amazing things, but also people are trying to kill him. Same goes for Jesus. He travels around, he shares the gospel, he heals the sick, he teaches amazing things. Some people love it, some people threaten his life. And both stories all culminate in them, arrive, them arriving in the city the city of David, which is the key term that is used again and again and again through Luke's gospel, and they arrive and they take their throne. And at that moment, you think, OK, here we go. The kingdom of God is going to come. And uh, for David, obviously, the story goes one particular way. For Jesus, that moment where you think, oh, he's going to do what David did. He's going to sit on the throne. He's going to reign. He's going to establish the kingdom. What happens? He dies an unexpected death. And little do people know that actually that's the way that God is going to establish his kingdom. So who is the Christ? According to Luke's gospel, I think Luke wants us to see that Jesus is fulfilling the David narrative. And so he's told us this story in order to make us think back to David and realise, oh, wow, Jesus isn't just 
the new Moses, like Matthew said, he's not just all these other things like Mark said, he is fulfilling the whole David story, not just a few isolated prophecy, so the whole shape of his life tells the David story. Again, like it's not like he has made it up, um, but he has spotted this under the inspiration of the spirit and he wants us to get it as well. And so he has creatively arranged his material to lead us on that journey. I hope that makes sense. Let me just sort of finish Luke and then we'll, well, we may have time for a question or two. Otherwise we'll take a break. Um, flip to the next page. And again, I'm aware this is very quick, uh, but thank you for bearing with me. Um, so if you were to look at Luke's gospel, you find that there are various sort of uh, main themes or main focuses um, sort of woven in between or undergirding this, this sort of Davidic narrative. So Jesus bears burdens. Um, we see this really strongly in Luke's gospel. Jesus is so compassionate. And, um, and in particular, he is compassionate to pe towards people who wouldn't normally experience compassion from religious leaders. Uh, so he um, he appears to the meek and lowly. So actually we see that we get Mary's viewpoint in the birth narrative and we're told about her family rather than um, Joseph. We get the story of the shepherds rather than the wise men. So the, the sort of the common people rather than the elite. Um, we get the wise men in Matthew's gospel. The angel appears to Mary rather than Joseph, which happens in Matthew's gospel. Um, again, Luke's not denying that these other things happen. He just chooses to focus on one particular aspect of the story that helps his his message we get loads of warnings to the rich in luke's gospel jesus eating with sinners with the lepers with the cripples with the blind with tax collectors we get the stories of the lost coin and the prodigal son women are mentioned way more in luke's gospel than the other gospels and probably than in any other ancient text really mary is mentioned three uh, 13 times the widow of name the widow uh, woman with ointment um, and the Gentiles are mentioned a great deal as well. So we get the story of the good Samaritan, <laughs> which is an oxymoron if you were living in Jesus' day. Can, can a Samaritan be good? They're outside of the people of God. Um, no, says Luke, like there is a place for these people in the kingdom. He celebrates them. And the, the centurion himself responds to the good news. So there's this sense of Jesus bearing burdens and caring for people. But then he also provides strength to his disciples to also bear burdens. So both, uh, so so Luke's gospel both begins and ends in the temple, um, which I think is significant. So that is the place where you meet God. There is a strong emphasis on prayer. There is a strong emphasis on the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is mentioned 18 times in Luke's gospel, uh, and then 57 times in Acts, which is like the sequel to Luke's gospel, compared to six times in Mark and 12 in Matthew. And joy and praise are regularly repeated. In fact, the whole thing seems to uh, build around Jerusalem. So it starts at the Jerusalem temple and then travels to Galilee. Uh, and then chapter nine, we're told Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And that seems to be a significant turning point in the gospel. And then you get this long, steady journey towards Jerusalem, including this statement in chapter 13. It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. It's all building to Jerusalem. And then how does the story end? with the, the, the instruction to the disciples, stay here in the city in Jerusalem until I send the spirit upon you, which is where Acts picks up. So Richard Burridge, who um, uh, he, he's at um, King's College London, he supervised my master's actually, great guy. Um, uh, he says this, Jerusalem is named about 33 times in Luke's gospel, as often as in Matthew, Mark and John combined, while it comes 60 times in, in Acts and the rest of the New Testament has it only 14 times, which shows how central it is to Luke's thinking. Why is Jerusalem and the temple so significant to Luke? 
is because he wants us to know that Jesus is the Davidic king. He is the one who rightfully reigns in Jerusalem. It was from David that the, the Messiah comes. It was from David who ruled in the city of David that the temple was actually built by his offspring. And so Luke draws all these things together in order to show us that, um, that the Christ is David and he has come to do what David uh, was all about and what he, um, yeah, to establish the Davidic kingdom forevermore, to fulfill the promises made to David. Okay, that was incredibly quick. <laughs> Thank you for bearing with me.